0: Please open your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 6, verse 33. Turn to Judges chapter 6, verse 33. Today we'll be reading from chapter 6, verse 33 to chapter 7, verse 22. This is page 193 in your church Bibles. So if you need a Bible, just put up your hand and we'd be more than happy to provide you with one Judges, Judges chapter 6 verse 33 we'll be reading from to chapter 7 verse 22 Hear what Holy Scripture says. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early, and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Marah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many take them down to the water and i will test them for you there and any one of whom i say to you this one shall go with you shall go with you and any one of whom i say to you this one shall not go with you shall not go so he brought the people down to the water and the lord said to gideon everyone who laps the water with his tongue As a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp, and the, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east Lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent. And struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethsheda, towards Arara, as far as the border of Abel Maḥola by Tabath. This is the word of the Lord. You, you are the God who is strength and mighty. You are a refuge. You are a strength. You are a very present help in trouble. Lord, you have created the universe. You have defeated enemy armies, you have split the Red Sea, and you have chosen to give victory to weak men like Gideon. And through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have paid for our sins, you have conquered death, and you have defeated the devil. And Lord, we thank you that though we are weak, you are strong. We confess that even though we know we are weak, we too often rely on our strength, and we fail to accept the we- our weakness and run to you, Lord. Lord, increase us in humility towards you, fear of you, and dependence upon you. Help us to continue to be a praying church. Father, because you are a strong and mighty God who is able and willing to save, We pray that you may show your power by saving the children in this church. We pray that in Grace Kids today that you may save souls. Lord, one place that we can feel our weakness is as we navigate relationships and friendships at work and in school. You have called us to be a shining light in a dark world. Let it be so, Lord, in our lives. Give us grace to be compassionate to others, but let us also be firm in our convictions and bold in the gospel, always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Help Christians in this church to have wisdom and courage to navigate difficult conversations. Father, we thank you that in your wisdom you have made this one body consist of different members with different gifts, And we thank you for the people who serve our church in behind-the-scenes ways. We thank you for the Mercy Ministries team, and we ask that you may give them strength and wisdom as they help those who are in need. We also thank you for those who have dedicated themselves to the finance team, and we pray that you may continue to give them strength, wisdom, and skill. Father, we also think of our city and think how dark it can be. And we, pr- we thank you that there are churches in this city right now that are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for one such church, Grace Toronto. We pray that this church would continue to prioritize the gospel and proclaim the gospel boldly throughout this city we ask that you may give them grace and humility to not rely upon their own strength, but to rely upon your strength in everything that they do. Father, because you are a strong and mighty God, we ask that you would use the preach word today to change lives and save souls. Use your word to save the lost, encourage the weak, and to grow Christians lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Please do take your Bibles and open to Judges chapter 6, Judges chapter 6. Anne Steele was a hymn writer. We sang one of her hymns last Sunday, the hymn, And Can You Yet Delay? It's a wonderful hymn urging people to no longer delay in coming to Christ, Anne wrote many hymns. Um, She was also a very, very weak woman. She contracted uh, recurrent malaria as a child. Recurrent malaria meaning every year or two it would just come back, it would just weaken your immune system through the years. Uh, This sounds strange to our ears because of modern dentistry, but she lived with constant toothaches, and uh, dentistry back then is not what it was now, so she was in constant pain. Um, She had, in what we would probably diagnose today as irritable bowel syndrome, so just some internal issues in which she was in constant pain and discomfort, and for the last seven years of her life, she died at 62 years old. The last seven years of her life, she spent in bed. She couldn't get out of bed. She was bedridden. And yet, her pastor, at her passing, wrote this about her. Anne possessed a native cheerfulness of disposition, which not even the uncommon and agonizing pains she endured in the latter part of her life could deprive her of. She would, in a variety of ways, as well as by her enlivening conversation, give pleasure to all around her. That's interesting, huh? Here is a woman who is suffering her entire life, whose life is a life of physical pain and discomfort, but she is remembered as one who gave encouragement to all who crossed her path. One of the ways God used her to encourage others was her hymns she wrote, she started writing hymns as a teenager. Uh, She would share them with family and maybe some close family friends, and everyone was urging her to publish the hymns because they were so useful and helpful, and she refused until she was 44 years old. because She felt finally at 44 they could be published. She was afraid they would be successful, and she would grow proud. What causes a weak, Woman like Ann Steele to be so caught up with the Lord and delighting in God? And why does God seem so happy to bless her in her weakness? And what on earth does a weak Ann Steele have to do with Gideon of Judges chapter 6? Ah, that. Is for you, my friends, to figure out. We are in the second of three sermons on Gideon. Last week we saw his call. Today we'll see his mission. I, you know, sometimes we, we print bulletins and things on Fridays. I thought of a better title last night. I think I should have titled this sermon, Fleece and Lappers, just because that's such an amazing phrase. Fleece and Lappers you'll figure it out as we go. Uh, But let me kind of break this, the the narrative of what's going on here into a a couple big sections. And the first one is this, God prepares everything, okay? That's, this is, God prepares everything. So when Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 33, and just like clockwork, we've heard about these Midianite raiders before. They show up when harvest time comes and they're going to take everything Israel has grown and they're going to take it to themselves. Just like clockwork, they show up. Verse 33, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So these are the raiders who number like locusts, uh, which is, so that's the whole army, but probably you brought your whole family and other people. It's a massive amount of people. It's not just the 130,000 or so in the army. It's just tons of people. Look at verse 34, they come to pillage and plunder, but the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and then he called out Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali. So here's Gideon acting in faith. Remember, he's fearful, but he's acting in faith in spite of his fears. He calls on the Abiezrites, that's his own family, his own clan. and Then he calls on his entire tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, and then the three tribes in the northern region where the battle's going to be fought, the Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. That's why they're called. He calls all of them out to come to war. And the remarkable thing is they all come. These are the Abiezrites who Several verses ago, we're, send out Gideon so we can kill him for toppling our Baal statue. Same Abiezrites. So clearly something has changed. And the only explanation in this text is found in verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon clothed him, as as in putting on a garment. That's a very unique way to speak of the Spirit's ministry in the Old Covenant. Later in Judges, we'll read of um, Othniel, Jephthah, and the Spirit coming upon them. And we get to the story of Samson. The Spirit rushes on him. But here, the Spirit is putting himself on Gideon like a long robe, if you will. And what this means is that God is intervening, and He's supernaturally empowering Gideon to serve as the judge, the deliverer, the Savior. And that's important to note because it reminds us that Gideon's not great in himself. He's the weak man whom God has clothed. That's that's a good check for us. If there is any spiritual good taking place in this world today, it is because the Holy Spirit is causing it or empowering it, and perhaps that should focus our prayers a little, or at least make us pay a little more attention to Luke eleven thirteen, where Jesus talking about how God answers prayer. You, you like a child who comes and asks for a piece of bread. He doesn't give a stone. He's glad to answer. He finishes with this: If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Are you asking God for the Spirit? Why? We ask God for the Holy Spirit for our own personal contentment, our own personal joy, satisfaction? No, we ask God for the Spirit for the sake of ministry to others. The the, the entire ministry of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, the Spirit comes, He gifts us so that we can serve others, serve one another. Are you asking for God's Spirit to come and enable your service? That's what's happening with Gideon. The Spirit clothes him, and he is serving Israel by rising up as their judge. This takes us to number two. God graciously reassures His appointed leader. God graciously reassures, reassures his appointed leader. So God prepared everything, and now before the battle starts, he is graciously reassuring his guy, Gideon. How does this happen? Well, first of all, as the battle lines draw together, Gideon looks to God for some reassurance. Remember, Israel's been brought very low, right? They're hiding in the hills. They can't live in their own towns and villages because of these Midianite raiders. It's been seven years of this. You're completely destitute. Seven years of all your food being stolen. You're barely surviving. And when they cry out to God for help, God's message to them, remember what it was? He sends a prophet. What does the prophet basically say? You've been brought low, but you haven't been brought low enough. You're still clinging to your idols and until you're willing to let go, you cannot cling to me. But then, because he's gracious and because he's kind, the angel of the Lord shows up in Gideon's backyard. What does he say? He says to Gideon, you're gonna take action, you're gonna deliver my people. And, and the, the one thing that he says to Gideon that's most important to remember from last week is that when he looks to Gideon, he, that little phrase, I will be with you. Remember? I will be with you. So here's tiny little Gideon hiding in the winepress, beating out his wheat, <laughs> looks across the field. Who's the dude under the terebinth tree? Doesn't look like a normal dude, looks like an angel. Sacrifice, angel disappears. Angel says, now go take on that huge army out there. And here's what I have to offer you. Me. Gideon needed to learn that he needed the Lord. All Israel needed to learn that they needed the Lord. Everybody had to learn that God was enough. Have you learned that? God is enough. Gideon is learning this, so he asks for some reassurement. reassurement. You can tell this is a work in progress because of this whole fleece thing. So the first reassurance is wet wool. Uh, one of the difficulties in Gideon's story, and it is a difficulty, is figuring out the moral verdict on his actions. Is he acting in faith, in, in a lack of faith? Is the fleece thing, uh, is God disapproving of this or approving or is it a neutral? And we've got to sort of really dig in tight here to try and figure out what's going on. Uh, what we're asking of the Bible is are there, are there any indicators in the actual words of this text that would help us to figure out God's evaluation of Gideon's request. Is Gideon acting in faith? Or is he acting in unbelief with this whole putting out the fleece thing? Fleece is um, untreated wool. So maybe kids, you've seen a little lammy. Uh, and he's like huge, big lamby, and they take him, and the guy gets out now electric razors and goes, and off comes the wool. That's the fleece. That's what fleece is. And I think if it's done right, it often comes off as sort of one whole thing, right? And so it could be that the fleece that Gideon is using is just like a very large chunk of wool. <laughs> we, we talk about people getting fleeced, right? It means uh, you go to the salesman and you, you, you bought the extended warranty on the car, whatever, <laughs> that's your business. Uh, but uh, some of us might look at you and go, you got fleeced. Like they got every penny out of you. That's where that phrase comes from. So Gideon takes some wool, some of the, some of the wool, the fleece, and he lays it out on the, f- the threshing floor. That's because the threshing floor is open to the elements. There's no roof. And this is very good material to test. If you've ever worn a wool sweater in the rain, you know how this goes. So Judges 6, verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed his fleece, the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. A lot of dew. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just once more, test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry in the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. Let me show you five things that make me think Gideon was actually not in the wrong here, okay? First of all, look at what Gideon asks. He's asking God to confirm his revelation, not give it again. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. So he's not rejecting what God had already said. He's asking asking for confirmation of it. This is not unlike his conversation with the angel of the Lord. And remember, the angel of the Lord is not visibly present anymore. Gideon is being communicated with, presumably through the Holy Spirit, in perhaps an inaudible voice. So he may want some kind of confirmation or affirmation that he got the message right. Secondly, Gideon is asking here with great humility. Verse 39, "'Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more.'" He's acknowledging the possibility that that God might not be pleased with his second ask, and so he's asking humbly, or at least he's not asking with demand and uh, presumption. And thirdly, Gideon didn't argue or reject the instructions after God answered through the fleece. If If he was just trying to delay or dodge or act in fear... He would have, I think, kept asking for more confirmations or simply not done what he was told when the revelation of the fleece came. Fourthly, Gideon is asking God to do something here that only God could do. You know, that two miracles here, which by the way, it's always interesting to me when people say they're putting out a fleece. There's only ever one. Anyway... Uh, But there's two things that go on, right? The fleece wet and the ground dry, and then the ground dry and the fleece wet. If you think about it, the second of these two is the the more difficult of the miracle. And, And it makes the results unmistakable. God is able to do both. In other words, when you live in a land full of shamans and Baal priests and the rest, this is not something they could conjure up. This is something only God could do. And fifthly, and most strongly, I would suggest is what the writer of the Hebrews says about Gideon. Just hear these words again. What more shall I say? For time would fail me. Remember, this is in a chapter that's listing out people who are examples of faith, right, Hebrews 11. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and the others who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And I think it's that phrase that is most helpful in understanding the progression going on in Gideon. He is being made strong out of weakness. Gideon is a weak man with a weak faith, but it is a weak faith in a strong God. And God's concern in this entire episode is not the strength of Gideon's faith, but the object of that faith. In Gideon, is Gideon, weak faith as he is, relying on God alone, or is he trusting in what he can see, what he can measure, what he can predict? And brothers and sisters, that ideal is true in every age of the church. God is more concerned about the object of our faith than the size of it. Why do you think Jesus said, you know, it's just faith of a mustard seed? What matters is who you trust in, not the fervor or the strength of that trust. But we get this all flipped around in our churches. We think that what matters most of all is, is having this outsized grand faith that somehow really constrains God to do what we want. Or worse, we talk all about faith while, while our real confidence is in metrics and plans and pragmatics. The church doesn't need more money, more workers, more space, more meetings, more rock star leaders in order to be faithful. What the church needs to be faithful is more God. And before you throw Gideon under the bus for requesting a physical demonstration in order to get a little bit of reassurance that God is enough, you might just want to ponder the Lord's Supper. Because while that wine doesn't miraculously turn into blood, it is a physical reminder of the total sufficiency of Jesus, a reminder that he tells us to do again and again. It is a, a much better reminder of the sufficiency of God than budgets getting fulfilled or more people sitting in the pews. God is most concerned that we focus our faith on him and we keep it there. And that's why God's going to keep whittling down Gideon's army to nothing. So Gideon, with his very real yet tiny fleece-affirmed faith, says in chapter 7, verse 1, him and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. We say, good, good so far, Gideon. But then the Lord does his thing. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you know what? The people with you are too many. (laughs) Uh, Lord, it's um, 30,000 to (laughs) 130,000. Yeah, the people with you are too many. Too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, this really starts to get us to the heart of the issue. God's evaluation is that there are going to be some people who look at the current situation of 32,000 versus 135,000 and say this, well, the Israelites won because they were just better soldiers than the Midianites. They're tougher than the Midianites. They were more desperate, more skilled, and therefore it was was extraordinary, terrible odds, but somehow they did it. And God says to Gideon, I'm going to deal with that nonsense once and for all. Why? Because God's plan is for a weak judge with a weak army to reveal the omnipotence of God. So to help make the army weaker, God says, verse 3, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. I wonder if that would be you. (laughs) It <laughs> probably would have been me. Uh, 32,000 of us, 135,000 of them. They've been destroying us for seven years. Uh, there's, there's an out clause? Yeah, it's called the coward clause. It comes uh, right from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. It's not really called the coward clause. That's just what I call it. Uh, the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who's fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his followers, his fellows, rather, melt like his own. So the coward clause was to be read any time before Israel went out to battle. God never wanted Israel to think they were victorious because they were notorious. And so fleece faith Gideon, looks at his little army, and says, look, anybody who wants to go home, anybody who's feeling a little bit timid, anybody who's afraid, anybody who's scared, you, you, can, you can leave right now, no questions asked. And like two-thirds of his army leaves. He goes from 32,000 to 10,000. But maybe there's somebody out there who's still thinking, wow, these are, these are not good odds. But it's possible. It's possible it can be done. Stranger things have happened. 10,000 might defeat 135,000. If, if we just fight really, really well, we might win, which is why the Lord says to Gideon in verse 4, the people are still too many. Now, stop there for a second. What is the problem God is identifying? Simple. There are still enough soldiers in Israel that if they are victorious, even though they're so vastly outnumbered, They will believe it's their strength, their moxie, their skills, their strategies, their luck, their something. That's what saved them. So God determines to get the size of the army down to something so ridiculously small that nobody can challenge the fact that it was God who saved them. So again, verse 4, take them, the 10,000, down to the water. We're going to get rid of some. I will test them for you there. Any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. Any one of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Gideon's thinking, great. So he brought the people down to the water, and Yahweh said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. So you've got. Kids, you'd like this. You can try it this afternoon. Put some you go in the backyard. Don't do it in your mom's kitchen. Didn't hear it here. Uh, get get your sister or her brother to pour a little water out of the hose in your hand, and then you lap like a dog. This seems to me like a very inefficient form of drinking, but you can try it, and you would be one of the lappers. And then there were the other dudes who laid down at the river and just like drank. You could, you could try that too. Don't do it in the Humber. Bad things would happen to you later. Um, but someday in the great white north, you'll find a clean river and you can drink out of the river. So uh, the, you, you've, you've gotten rid of the scaredy cats. Uh, now you're talking about the dog lappers, right? There, there are few narratives in the Bible that lead to more weirdness in the Christian church. <laughs> Verse 6, The number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So here's Gideon putting out a fleece. Here is Gideon uh, looking for men who lap water out of their hands as opposed to kneel down to drink at a river. Sometimes Christians do really weird things. How many times has a fellow Christian said to you that they were, quote, putting out a fleece? Should we do a show of hands? If you've ever said that or someone you know has said that. I'm just curious. Like, How many fleece? I thought it would be more. Okay. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong sheep. Uh, But anyway, I've heard this many, many times. And they'll say to you, you know, I've devised this thing that if this happens, then I'll buy that house or I'll sell my car or I'll marry that girl. Can we just be very clear? Don't do that. Uh, God has given you a mind. Common sense, wisdom, and the Scriptures. Do what the positive commands the Scriptures say. Don't do the things the Bible forbids. And then all the other areas, just make decisions. It's really quite simple. You don't need a fleece. You don't even have a sheep. <laughs> Besides that, uh, if you're going to use the fleece thing, like why don't you use the lapper thing? Uh, so the Young Adults Summer Camping Trip, here's an idea for you. Like You say, tonight's speaker for the Young Adults Camping Trip was the only guy who lapped his water at lunch. That's how you choose your speaker. No, it's ridiculous. So I just want to push that out of the way. But I also want to push out of the way something a lot of our kind of Sunday school curriculum does here that's really unhelpful. A lot of commentators on the passage do this too. They say something like this. God chose the 300 lappers because lapping the water was a sign that they were the crack troops still looking for the enemy while they were lapping their water. These are like the Navy SEALs of the Israelite army who remained vigilant while while sipping their water. Tell me if you've ever heard that before. Yeah, A lot of you have heard that before. Can I just suggest to you, that's nonsense. What has God's overall purpose been in weeding out the army? To get it down to the elite squad so the elite squad gets all the credit? It's very opposite of that. This lapping-kneeling distinction is an arbitrary distinction that further clarifies the only person winning this battle is the Lord. The 300 men who are left to fight don't even fight. <laughs> They're not the crack troops. Maybe they had bad backs. Seriously, there's as much evidence they had bad backs as there is that they were crack troops. We don't know. But the whole point of the story is weak army, weak leader, weak leader, Strong God, great deliverance. (laughs) The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. I will save you. Who's doing the saving? The Lord. I will give the Midianites into your hand let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. That's that's important. Remember verse 8. He sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So what's Gideon left with here? 300 lappers, 300 torches, 300 jars, 300 trumpets, and God. But this is the God who can open a sea in front of you, and this is a God who can knock over the walls beside you. This is the God who can make the sun stand still above you. This is the God who can cause the ground to open up beneath you, and simply put, this God doesn't need you. And we're prone to forget that. We're prone to reject that. And we're prone to live opposite to that. But God looks at Gideon he says, Gideon, go win this war against those thousands with these 300 lappers. Consider what the Lord is doing here. God keeps reassuring Gideon and then taking away more of his resources. I will be with you. Send all the scared ones home. I will be with you. Send away the ones who don't lap water. I will be with you. Send away all the other ones. But keep their trumpets, their torches, and their jars. I will be with you. Is is that sentence enough for you in your hour of greatest need? Would God really be enough for you in your moment of greatest trial? Many of us can answer yes, and the only reason is that God miraculously intervened in our lives, much like he's doing here with Gideon. Gideon remember, Gideon wasn't looking for God, he wasn't praying to God, he was just thrashing wheat in a wine press. And the angel of the Lord just appeared under his tree, but then that angel called him. That angel accepted his offering. That angel clothed him by his spirit, sent him forward to do his work. Has God been calling you, and have you answered? Maybe you've been sitting here week by week. Maybe you've grown up in this church, and you've heard the need to repent from your sins and trust on Christ. Have you done it yet? I can't think of any good reasons why you would wait. Have you accepted the offering that Jesus made for sinners? His his death and his resurrection in your place is enough for this God to save you fully forever and ever. But you must repent from your sins, and you must trust in Jesus. Once you've done that, you'll begin to understand the beauty of these words, I will be with you. You. Uh, if he's with you, what can mere man do to me? This is what's going on in Gideon's life. Uh, I said back in Judges eight ten. Uh, well, I didn't say this back in Judges eight ten. It says the Midianite army was like locust in numbers. They had about one hundred and thirty five thousand soldiers. Gideon's now down to 300. If you want some, like, facts, that means that Gideon's army is 0.22, not 22%, but 0.22, less than 1%. About a quarter of a percent the size of the other army. 135,000 to 300. In other words, put your money on Midian, not Gideon. (laughs) But Gideon, as fearful as he is, he just keeps on obeying God. So he sends the cowardly away. He sends the non-lappers away. He keeps all their trumpets, torches, and tumblers. And that same night, verse 9, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. God can speak as if it's already done. And we have every reason to suspect that that's exactly what Gideon was about to do. But look at what God says next. But if you are afraid to go down, Go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Now, just pay attention to those words. God says to Gideon, Gideon's not asking for anything here. Gideon, for all we can see, looks like he's ready to go. But before he goes, God says to Gideon, if you're afraid, let me just give you one more reassurance. Go down to the camp. This is not Gideon asking for fleece miracles or message confirmations. This is God volunteering more information to reassure his faithful but fearful warrior. I recently learned that training wheels are passe. This is not how you train a child to ride a bike. You buy them a bike without pedals and they scoot or something. I will just confess that in the Martin household we used training wheels. I bear no shame for it. And if you used training wheels, you will know that eventually you remove the training wheels. They're like little wheels that go on the side of the back wheel, kids, if you don't know what I am talking about. It's kind of like horses and buggies. Anyway, uh, you, you take, it's nothing like horses and buggies. I'm just being silly. Uh, you take the little training wheels off and then, because it just seems to be internationally a dad job, it's not a great job. You run behind the little person And as you're running behind them with sort of a a hand ready to steady and catch, what what are you doing, Dad? You're saying things like this. You got it. Keep pedaling. Don't hit the cat. Uh, you're, You're bringing encouragement along the way, right? And you might think of your heavenly father like this with Gideon, choosing to bring some words of encouragement as he takes off the training wheels. Since God is kind, we sang about that today, and loving, God condescends to Gideon's weaknesses and offers him a little boost, a little steadying on the bike. Now, the cool kids call this a God thing. This is verse 11. He went down with Per his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts. Okay, we got that. Verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. So these are the bad guys. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it, that's the tent, upside down so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, friends, this is what you call a weird dream. (laughs) But the idea of a tiny loaf of barley bread rolling down a hill into a big army tent and flipping the tent upside down so that it lies flat sounds like a dream, right? (laughs) But comrade Midianite here, here's the dream, and immediately thought he knew what it meant. This means the loaf of bread Gideon is going to roll into camp and topple big tent Midian. In other words, Baal is going to be contended with. By whom? Gideon? Or is his name Jerob Baal? The one who contends with Baal. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he's hiding in the shadows somewhere. He worshiped. He worshiped. What do you think that means? Do you think of any times you've just stopped in your tracks and worshiped? Maybe it was uh, when your child was born, you're just giving praise to God or... saw just some really evident work of God in life. Or or you're reading your Bible and something just a penny drops and and there's this whole internal realignment to truth and you just worship the Lord and thank him for what he's shown you there. I think that's what's going on here with Gideon, the sense of God is real, he's here, he's with me. I understand his power. All that's been ratcheted up in his own heart. He's coming to more fully grasp who Yahweh is. So he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for Yahweh has given the host of Midian into your hand. Not me. Yahweh's going to do it. In fact, it's like it's already done. Yahweh has given them. You've got to note here how quickly, how accurately Gideon obeys. God told him, attack them this night. But he also told him, it's fine if you want to go down first and over, you know, eavesdrop on a dream and its interpretation. Once he gets his confirmation, he runs back to his little army of 300 and he leads them into battle. Let's, let's look at the battle. He divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. He said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. We are never told but it seems very likely to me that God is the one who gave these instructions. Just think about what happened at Jericho. God was the one who said, you know, march around once a day for six days on the seventh day, march around seven times, blow the trumpets. There's some similarities here. Sounds like God is the one who's giving these instructions. And Gideon passes on the instructions to his little army of 300. He says, divide yourselves into groups of 100, three groups of 100, cover your torches with a jar. Okay, and when I say so, Smash the jar, hold up your torch, blow your trumpet, and then between blows on the trumpet say, a sword from the Lord and for Gideon. It is simple, right? And bizarre. Now, you can't get past this without doing this. So, this is for the kids. Uh, torch, okay, because that's the best I could do. Uh, pottery. And my favorite of all, uh, the trumpet. So this is what goes on. And you tell me if this makes sense. Here I am with my torch in a jar, right? And we sneak up on the enemy. And we smash the jars. We blow the trumpets. (laughs) A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! That's the best I got. A swordful Lord and for Gideon. And then they just keep doing that over and over and over again. That, my friends, is weird. <laughs> but if you fight your battle against 100,000 soldiers doing that, and there's only 300 of you doing that and you win, who gets all the credit? The Lord, right? So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him that came to the outskirts, this is verse 19. The middle, uh, beginning of the middle watch, When they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, they held in their left hands the torches, oh, I did it wrong, sorry, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They, the Midianites, cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, Yahweh sent every Midianite man's sword against his comrade and against all his army, and all the army fled. There's a really important verse to note in this section, and that's verse 21. Every man stood in his place. Whatever God did in the minds of the Midianites via this strange scene of crashing jars and trumpets and shouts, it was clearly God who did it. The 300-man army was just there to tell the Midianites, this is Yahweh. We're just messengers, letting you know, and in case you're missing the message, uh, we'll get your attention with some trumpets. This is the Lord. Brothers and sisters, just like Israel and Gideon, you and I face this constant temptation to trust in anything besides the Lord. Uh, from the moment Adam ate of the fruit in the garden till today, we are We're tempted to turn away from God and trust in things that God has made. And and along the way, you're going to be constantly faced with that temptation. But it doesn't come, you know, like like the dramatic way you maybe think it's going to come in the movies, where somebody puts a gun to your head and says, deny Jesus or die. And you're like, I'll die, hopefully. Hopefully. That's generally not how it comes, right? It comes over 40 years after Deborah and Barak of peace and prosperity. And then another seven years where things begin to go bad and you finally start looking back to the Lord, but not really because you don't want to let go of Baal and you certainly don't want to let go of Asherah. How do we do that? No, things are fine. You just quietly stop reading your Bible. You stop attending church regularly. You expand your viewing restrictions because you're older now. You're more mature. You can handle that stuff. You grow more and more prayerless as your RSP gets bigger and bigger. You let your kids put a little... Baal statue of something in your house. Maybe you whisper to your Christian friend, oh, it's okay to marry a Muslim. You love each other. It'll be fine. And at the root of all of that is a kind of self-confidence, self-reliance. Believing that you're strong enough to get through life on your own. That's at the root of all idolatry. You even believe that you can you know, use your idols to get your idols to get you what you want out of life. And the whole event here of Gideon beating up on the Midianites is intended to teach you, you are weak. But God is strong. And that's a really, really good thing. The Lord spoke through his prophet Isaiah and said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Okay? I'm the creator of everything. Here's who I'm going to look to. Here's who I'm going to give attention to. He who is humble and contrite. The word contrite means broken or disabled. One who's contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Why is that? That's because when it comes to the real God of the universe, his delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of man. God is not impressed by the size of your army, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So with whom does God show his power? those who fear Him, those who hope in Him, those who tremble at, obey His Word, those who live humbly and contrite, broken over their sins, their failures, and their shortcomings. The sign that's posted along the Christian path says, walk in weakness, walk in weakness, walk in weakness. You crest that next hill, there's the sign again, walk in weakness. Keep walking, keep moving, keep obeying, but do it in weakness and dependence upon your Creator. Maybe you feel weak, but maybe you don't feel weak enough. Maybe you should learn a lesson from Anne Steele, not to get sick and be bedridden, but to live a life low before God in order that he might demonstrate his power and his grace through you. His delight is not in the strength of your job performance nor his pleasure in your athletic success or parental approval, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his steadfast love. Men like Gideon and God willing people like us. Let's pray together. I wonder, Lord, if we would be more aware of our weakness if we thought more often about our death and our future with you. We're going to sing this song, Father, um, a song a lot of us love, about the house of Zion, feasting in that house one day. And it is encouraging to sing, but I pray that Even as we sing it now, we would be mindful of our frailty, our weakness, and reminded that the only way we're going to get to that house is if we too are clothed by the Spirit. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.